Sales Tuners, Episode 85, Doug Landis, Growth Partner at Emergence Capital. At the end of the day, acting and selling, your, your ultimate goal is you're, you're trying to elicit a positive response from your audience, right? You're trying to connect and engage with your audience to elicit that response. And you do that by getting in its character and telling the story of your character. This is Sales Tuners with Jim Brown, the only weekly show where we talk about the attitude, action, and ability that gets sales reps and entrepreneurs to grow their revenue from $1 million to more than $10 million in just two years. It's time. It's time. It's Sales Tuners time. I'm Jim Brown, your host, and our weekly inspiration comes from Bruce Springsteen, who said your success story is a bigger story than whatever you're trying to say on a stage. Success makes life easier. It doesn't make living easier. Prior to becoming a venture capitalist, investing in Series A and Series B companies, today's guest, Doug Landis, spent more than a decade driving sales productivity at some of the world's top technology companies, names like Box, Google, and Salesforce. During his tenure as VP of Sales at Box, Doug also carried another title, Chief Storyteller, where he helped transform the way sales reps talk to their customers, leading to sales of more than $300 million annually. All right, make sure you stick around until the end where I'll give my recap and top takeaways. You can also check out all the links and show notes at salestuners.com slash 85. But now let's get to the conversation where Doug talks about the hardest job he ever had as he was getting into sales. Probably the best job, the hardest job I ever had in my life selling was right out of college. I went to go work for Black & Decker and they had just launched their accessories division. So it's kind of like the software, it's uh, hardware, if you think about it. It's like saw blades and drill bits and screwdriver bits. And I covered from Canada to Mexico. They gave me a company car and a whole bunch of tools and a credit card, and they're basically like, go sell. So I was literally driving around going door-to-door to different hardware stores trying to help convince them or trying to help understand their business and help them figure out how they can actually drive more revenue um, by selling black and decker accessories instead of like ace hardware or true value accessories, drill bits and saw blades. It was incredibly eye-opening and uh, talk about like being thrown right into the fire. Tell you what, I was a blast. So that's something you missed, but not a whole lot of people know that about me. Well, that's fantastic for a couple of reasons. One, I know you're good friends with John Barrows and he also started his career uh, yep. selling in the, in the hardware space. So uh, <laughs> I think that's fantastic. What, what motivates you to do the work that you're doing today, Doug? Uh, you know, look, I think at the end of the day, I'm a salesperson at heart. I always have been, whether that, you know, I started selling Boy Scout or Girl Scout cookies or whatever you'd sell when you're a little kid. I don't even remember. It's been so long. Lemonade stand, you know, on the sidewalk or selling newspaper subscription or magazine subscriptions when I'm in, you know, elementary school and junior high. I've just, I've always been a seller. It's in our blood. It's in my whole family's in sales um, or it has been in sales. And it's just something that I'm super passionate about. And and I think there's a lot of misconception in the world of sales. There's a lot of total douchebag sellers, right? People that actually give selling a bad name. And so many people have this preconceived idea that I'm going to be manipulated or it's going to be this used car salesman experience. And the reality is, is when you have a great sales experience, whether that's you're in a retail store or whether you're a buyer of, you know, millions and millions of dollars of, of software technology or even software and hardware, when you have a great experience with somebody and they really get you and you have and you build great rapport and you're, and you, and they help you be wildly successful in your job and feel more 
um, fulfilled, there's, it, there's nothing better. And, and at the end of the day, that's, that's the goal, right? How do we get everybody to be that? And how do we actually elevate the profession of sales? I mean, it's nothing like, just think about the number of salespeople there are in the world and the number of universities that actually have programs that teach you how to become a great seller. Like it's, it's just, it's so awkward, right? So how do these salespeople get into sales? Someone's got to take a chance on them. And then they've got to go through some level of training. And hopefully you join the right company at the right time that, that provides you what you, you know, kind of gives you the foundational um, components so that you can go out and actually grow in, in your sales career. Well, we're going to talk about a whole lot of stuff today, but I want to stay personal real quick. I know that you've been on four reality TV shows, but I got to hear more about this. I was a, I'm a professionally trained actor. I went to Gene Shelton's Actors Lab here in San Francisco early on. I started acting when I was like five. And you know, it's interesting. It's kind of connected to the idea of storytelling because when you're acting, I mean, and even just like when you're selling at the end of the day, acting and selling, your, your ultimate goal is you're, you're trying to elicit a positive response from your audience, right? You're trying to connect and engage with your audience to elicit that response. And you do that by getting in its character and telling the story of your character. And so there's so many correlations between like acting and selling and storytelling that it all is just kind of like, I, I don't know, I guess I was kind of meant to be here. Um, so anyway, the reality TV show thing was just, you know, back in the early days when Survivor first started, I was like, oh, that looks like fun. And I'm a pretty athletic and adventurous human being. And I was like, I want to go try it. And I did. Um, I made it through a couple rounds and I didn't get selected, but I applied for a couple of other shows. One of them was a show called Beg, Borrow and Deal. It was on ESPN. I was on season number two. And that's basically a combination of Survivor and The Amazing Race, but with a sports twist. They took two teams of four people and you had a race from South Beach, Florida to Mount Rushmore with nothing but the clothes on your back and your driver's license. <laughs> and along the way, you had to complete these sports-oriented tasks, like find Lance Armstrong, find a bike, race him in a one-mile race and beat him. And there's a ton of rules. Like, you know, you can never touch cash or credit card. You only got one favor from a person. You had to sleep for every six hours. And it was so much fun. And my team won the whole thing. That was kind of fun. And then I did a, you know, a handful of other things that I don't want to really want to get into. <laughs> and no, it was not The Bachelor or anything, you know, Paradise <laughs> Island or anything like that. Well, I'm definitely going to go out and find a link to this and I, I, will, I will put it in the show notes. I think that's oh, absolutely boy. fantastic. <laughs> it, it's interesting how you made that correlation to acting. One of the things that I tell a lot of teams that I work with is that if you start to find yourself getting stuck, go take an improv class. In fact, oh my go, go do it just as a, as a team building exercise because you're right. It's absolutely. that connection you have with each other and that need to listen, to truly listen because you have to reply yeah. with yes and. And so you yeah. just talk about getting in character and being able to reveal what you need. I love it. I think that was a fantastic uh, correlation there. So, uh, yeah, I, by the way, I totally agree with improv. I a hundred percent believe that everyone should take an improv class because it's about being present and spontaneous. Right. And in every conversation, especially with a customer, we have no idea what's going to happen. Like we have a plan that we want to, we want to walk through, but we need to be present in the moment to alter that plan when, when necessary, when we know things are going sideways. And improv kind of forces you to, to practice that muscle. Yeah, because as, as prepared as you are, you have no idea what the response of the other person is going to be. So yeah. it kind of goes out the window right away. I, Doug, I want to give people a clear picture of what you do because you, you, you've left the active day-to-day -day sales role. You're now a partner at Emergence Capital. Uh, what does that mean? And, and what do you spend your days doing today? <laughs> what it means is I got remarkably lucky um, I, I joined a venture capital firm that is a known entity to me for a long time. They were 
uh, early investors in Salesforce and in Box. Um, so uh, Emergence Capital is a, is a Series A, B stage venture capital firm that is hyper, hyper focused, only investing in cloud-based kind of enterprise focused B2B solutions, right? So Salesforce, Yammer, Box, ServiceMax, SuccessFactors, Viva, Steelbrick, you know, we've had some pretty crazy success. Um, we're also early investors in Zoom and Crunchbase and Chorus and SalesLoft. And, and so I came on board as a really interesting role. And I think more and more firms are starting to do this is, you know, we want to be the most important partner to the most important companies. And what that means is we want to do more than just write a check. We are super active investors and we fundamentally believe on the go to market side around Series A and Series B is it's one of the hardest areas to get right. And so they brought me on board to basically act as like free consulting to our portfolio company. So I help them figure out kind of how are they going to go from a million to 10 million to 50 million to 100 million. And that kind of covers the gamut, right? It's not just about sales productivity. It's everything from, okay, well, who's our ideal customer profile? Who are we targeting and why? And what are our buyer personas? And what's our hiring strategy? And what's our operating plan? And who do we need to hire on what territories? And how do we think about territories? And how do we think about the messaging that we're delivering to all these different buyers? And so like, I get really tactical and really in the weeds. Versus like, hey, I'm just going to kind of sit here in my ivory tower and say, hey, read this article or, hey, meet the CIL. No, like, no, let's, let's redo your whole sales process because this is a mess. That's the kind of uniqueness of my role um, and, and our firm. And I think it's, uh, it really helps to kind of differentiate us from, from everyone else because you get a real partner instead of someone that's just, you know, you meet once a quarter for a board meeting. Well, having raised venture capital myself, I, I get that the difference between, as you said, just a check and then a partner coming alongside and actually kind of rolling up their sleeves to your point and and doing some of the work with you, uh, but still making sure that the company knows it's it's your company. We're just here to help. So yeah, that, that's critical. I'm just here to influence what you do, where you go, right? I, I don't own it. You, at the end of the day, have to execute against your new sales process or you know, uh, you know, know, your ICP or your messaging. You have to make sure that everyone's delivering it on you know, kind of on point, but at the end of the day, you need some help thinking through what what should we be doing? What are we missing? Well, and there, there's two things that I wanted to talk about with you today. Uh, Doug. One, obviously, is storytelling because you're a master at that. Uh, and the other is really uh, enterprise sales and, and kind of talking to executives, how to sell to executives. So we're kind of going to bounce before between uh, both of those. But I want to set the foundation with, you know, you now seeing this in, in multiple different companies, either on their side of the table, meaning you're the guy running it, or now as this growth partner, Emergence Capital. So if you don't get sales right from the beginning, you're kind of setting yourself for long-term disaster. So how do, uh, for you. how should we start thinking about this so that we do get it right from the beginning? Whew. Okay. So your series A stage company, maybe series B, you've got some level of product market fit. You've got, you know, your first million, two million in revenue. You know, I would argue that that's actually fairly easy, uh, especially out here in the Valley. You have a tendency of feeding off each other. We have a tendency of uh, you know, like it's super easy to find kind of those early adopters and go after them. I say the harder kind of tranche is getting from 2 million to, to 10 million or 2 million to 20 million, because at that point in time, now you really have to prove your product market fit in, an, in a way that is beyond those early adopters. You really have to go after kind of maybe some of the folks that are going to be a little bit more difficult to get engaged, number one, and to actually get them to buy your product or prove the value to them, right? So to get them to move from Okay, this sounds interesting to you. Okay, I really want to. I really want to take action to. Okay, now I'm wildly successful and happy with this with this purchase. So I think in the early days, there's there's three things in particular that you have to focus on. And if you don't get this right, it will screw you in the long run. Number one is focus. 
And I think a lot of companies try and do uh, try and be all things to everybody. And that's a real problem. And the, the, the reality is you want to focus. And this is why in the early days, we spent a lot of time digging into ICP. And you've heard, I mean, this is like a super hot topic these days. What is ICP and how do you know? And, you know, it's, it's more than just, okay, I know, you know, mid-level marketing managers in manufacturing companies in the Midwest. That's our sweet spot. I can sell to them all day, every day. But what you have to consider is how do you get them? How do you find them? How do you get them? How do you, where's that list? If you're selling into a really kind of obscure industry to a very obscure title, it's going to be a lot harder to find those lists, so to speak, of those titles of who I should be reaching out to. So it's important to consider. But you got to, you know, to focus, know who, who, where your low hanging fruit is, and then repeat, rinse and repeat, rinse and repeat, rinse and repeat, rinse and repeat until it makes sense for you to move on to another one until you've actually fully, fully proven it. Because again, it's easy in every industry to get one or two of innovative leaders who are thinking like, okay, this looks interesting. I'm, I want to engage. It's moving beyond those first one or two customers. The focus is one area. Second is hiring. Oh man, if you do not hire right early, you are in so much trouble in the long run. And what I mean by hiring right early, it means hiring the right sales leader. Um, are you hiring a builder or are you hiring a culture deal person leader? right? Where are you at your stage? And what do you need? Do you need somebody that has incredible industry knowledge and access? Or do you need somebody that's just a hustler that you want to give them a chance? Maybe they're an RVP at a larger company and you're ready to give them a chance to be VP of sales. Because whoever you bring in as that leader is then going to go off and hire the team, right? And so if you get that leader wrong, the team is likely going to be wrong, unless you get lucky and you get a couple of really, you know, really good people who will stick around even if that leader is no longer there. But, you know, there's a ton of influence there. So hiring is super important in the early days, you know, and then and then the third thing is just, you know, being hyper, hyper focused on your customer success. You know, in the early days, you get you tend to drink a little too much of your own Kool-Aid. and We all know what happened there. Um, and when you do that, you tend to forget about your customers because you're like, oh, we got to hire. We got to go hit these revenue targets. Blah, blah. And you forget, like, you know, you can put a ton of water into the top of the bucket. But if you have holes on the bottom. You know, it's just, you're, it's, a, it's a losing proposition. So it's, it's super important that you get those early customers and you make them just insanely successful. And you make them your biggest advocates. You want them selling on your behalf. Now, all of a sudden, you, have, you require less people because your customers are out basically selling for you. One of the things I love most about this this show is just all the different voices that I get to hear from. I recently had Mark Roberge on the show as well, and um, <laughs> you know, that that customer success for him is number one. He yeah. says you yep. you have to start there. Doesn't matter totally. about u- unit economics. Doesn't matter about deal mechanics. Just go get customers who couldn't imagine not having your product, and then let that to your point lead everything else. Then you can figure out all the things that have to scale and whatnot. Yeah. Hold on, before we shift gears, I want to want to dig into that for just one second. By the way, I love Mark good friend of mine. Um, I totally espouse exactly what he says. However, there's one thing I want to add to that. When it comes to your customer success, what a lot of people forget about is digging into why this is a product that they can't live without, right? We focus on wanting to get them there, but we don't really dig into, okay, what were those trigger moments that caused you to go from, okay, I'm just exploring this to, I need to have this. And then what was the trigger moment that, that caused you to go from, I need to have this to, I cannot live without this. Because there, there are moments in time when all of a sudden your buyer goes and something happens. 
whether it was like all of a sudden they're, they're about to make an acquisition, they missed their numbers, something happens on their end that caused them to go, oh shit, right? And mm-hmm. those are the moments we need to go capitalize. And those are the things we need to go try and look for or, or tell our, educate our customers on that if they're not thinking about this, then they're going to face some troubles in the long run. So it's, it's not just about let's make our customers wildly successful, but let's also remember the, the things that we should be looking for as to why they're so damn happy with us. Those trigger moments are critical. I'm glad you dove in more to that. I, I was not going to take us away into something else. I wanted to actually go back and focus on focus, if you will. Um, you know, <laughs> I, I, I work with a lot of companies early stage, uh, pre-series A. So, uh, you know, I, I could maybe feed you some stuff uh, out here in the Midwest. I know, I know you guys are investing in high alpha, so you're getting a lot of uh, view there. But one of the biggest challenges I see is these pre-series A companies not wanting to focus. I am preaching every single day. You have got to pick something. I don't care what it is. Just let's yeah. pick something. And they're just so reluctant to do it. Like, how do you help me help them? How do I get them to <laughs> actually just focus on an industry, a customer profile, just something? I think there's, I mean, it depends. They could be going to Y Combinator or 500 Startups or, or one of the other kind of accelerators that is actually unfortunately telling them that they're worth so much more than they actually really are and that they're bigger than so much more than they actually really are and that they should be, you know, shooting for the moon. We fundamentally believe in moonshots. Don't worry, sure. we do. Um, and we're thinking about that as we're doing our due diligence around the series day, which is when they come to us about a million to two million of revenue, right? But the reality is, is that the pre-series A phase, when you're in the seed stage, you're, you're in the world of hypotheses, right? You're really, you're, you should be doing A-B testing all day long. And then once you get a hit, hone in on that. Because the reality is when you go to raise your series A, that's what they want to know. They don't necessarily, like these horizontal solutions, and I'm going to use Box as an example. Actually, the fact that Box is so horizontal is not really a great thing. Everybody, the one thing that everyone gets super caught up in is TAM. Oh my gosh, your TAM is $10 billion. It's $50 billion. It's $100 billion. It's a trillion dollars. No, it's not. Yeah. That's, that's bullshit. So don't get caught up in that because the first thing that real, you know, like good investors are going to dig into is the reality of that. Because there's TAM and then there's, SAM, which is your serviceable addressable market. And then there's, well, what are you going to do to actually capitalize on that? Because I tell you what, trying to be all things to everybody won't work because you're going to have to make trade-offs in terms of product. You're going to have to make trade-offs in terms of resources, in terms of hiring, in terms of marketing. There's so many trade-offs that you're going to have to make that it's going to end up costing you in the long run. I'm, I'm sitting here just jotting down notes, shaking my head like, yes, like this is the gospel. So, uh, but like I said, there, there is a lot of stuff that I want to cover. So uh, let's talk about uh, first selling to executives. I know this is something that in today's world you've talked about, uh, Doug, we're, we're so focused on this commercial sales aspect, the SDR, BDR, AE route that we're really not spending a lot of time teaching people uh, and you've used the phrase dynamic business acumen of how to actually get in front of and talk to executives. Can you dive more into that? It's funny enough, it actually kind of fits into this idea of storytelling too, right? Because if you're, if you're going to go present to the CEO of a Fortune 100 company, the question is, how do you do that? And how do you get good at that? So we, and, and unfortunately in the Valley, we focus a ton of effort on how to build the machine, right? How to build that SDR, BDR, commercial AE machine that's the long tail Right. And you need to, you need to kind of perfect that before you start going up in the enterprise too quickly. Because again, going up in the enterprise too quickly can really bite you in the butt. Right. Meaning if your company's not ready, if your product's not ready, if you're, re- if you don't, if you're not resourced enough and GE is all of a sudden interested in your product, 
they could they could crush you with the amount of resources that they require in order to actually fully leverage your product. But let's just say you've moved up appropriately, you're moving upstream, you're now selling to the enterprise, and you've got some enterprise reps. What typically happens? You're going to go, who are you going to go look for? You're going to go to SAP, to Oracle, to HP, to Salesforce, maybe to LinkedIn. You know, I'm talking companies. And you're going to go try and poach some of their enterprise folks. But how do you get, how do you take these commercial reps and turn them into these, the next generation of badass enterprise reps? And one of the things we don't talk enough about is what does it take to make, to become a great enterprise AE? And there's, you know, there's, there's a handful of people out there that I think about in my career. Um, you know, recently at Box, and I'm like, oh, these guys are so good because there's certain things that they do um, that they just have kind of in their DNA that have made them wildly successful in terms of the enterprise AE. But where's the program? Where's the training program that focuses on training your enterprise reps that have been around for 15, 20 years and they've been selling for a long time, so they don't really need some of that. I mean, yeah, sometimes the foundational stuff is important, but let's go back to having a dynamic business conversation with a CEO of Fortune 100 company. How do you get comfortable with that? How do you get comfortable with being able to read a 10K and 10Q and within five minutes, you can know exactly what that business is focusing on and how to orient your conversation? Because when you're selling to a CXO, you got 30 seconds to get their attention. Otherwise, they take over the meeting and you're done in five minutes, right? Or they push you down to some mid-level manager person and then your opportunity of doing a much larger, more strategic deal is much, much more difficult. So then you have to go rely on your, your, you know, your CEO or one of your board members to help kind of reorient that relationship. I think we don't spend enough time really helping kind of our strategic AEs or enterprise folks become smarter, better, and faster at what they do. And, and it's a, I think it's a massive opportunity. Even we do these like enterprise sales meetups and I go to them all over the country and it's like, okay, where, who's, who's there? I don't see those salty 20-year-old, those 20-year sales veterans going to those enterprise sales meetups, right? Like, I just don't. So I'll pick on a couple of people. My buddy, Rob Dalahite. Rob, where do you go to get smarter, better, faster? Or Colin Frisbee or Dan Cutler. And these are all names that you're not allowed to poach. These are my friends. (laughs) (laughs) But what I'm saying is like, these guys are just masters at enterprise selling. And the reason they are is I would highlight there's like four things that they do exceptionally well. They... First and foremost, they know how to say no. You know, as sellers, we have this tendency of like being wrapped up with happy years. Like everything sniffs, everything smells like a great opportunity. I'd say there's two people actually at Box, Dan Cutler, Marcia, McNiff. Um, they're just badasses and they're so good at saying no. You listen to them on the phone, they're like, nope, sorry, I'm not going to agree to that. I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to do that unless I get something in return. And just being able to have the conviction to say no, even to it, like, you know, CEO of a Fortune 100 company or CIO is it takes some serious confidence, but that confidence comes with your ability to understand their business and really understand the value that you can deliver to their business, right? And not being afraid of saying no, because you might lose the deal by saying no, but that's okay because you believe in your own company and your product so much that it gives you the confidence to say no, right? So saying no, being able to read and understand a business and, and quickly identify your value and how that fits in. And of course, being able to have a business level conversation, not a product conversation, not a, not a capability conversation, but a business conversation. Like, oh, let's see, the next two years, you've got to, you know, you need to cut costs by 22%. From what I read, the three areas that you're focused on doing that are is product, you know, moving away from kind of your back end 
architecture right now because that's really costly. It's expanding into new markets so that you can reduce your cost of sale and you know it's leveraging your channel partners. I read all that in your 10Q. Here are the three areas where we think we can help you connect the dots there, right? It's being able to have that business level conversation and not a product conversation. And then, you know, and then the last thing that they do is they're remarkably polished, right? Um, what I mean by that is there is a, you know, I call it the weekend self. And I do this even when we talk about storytelling, but it's the, the idea of they speak casually amongst friends and family on the weekends. But when they're at work, they're, they're painting pictures of what's possible. Right, they're they're articulating with uh, a certain level of of expertise and professionalism, and they know when to use kind of the casual nature of conversations, which we unfortunately have a tendency of using a bit too much in today's day and age. But if you're reaching out to again a Fortune 500 CIO, they don't have time for casual bullshit. They don't get to the point. Yeah. And they don't care. Uh, there's, yeah. there's so much there that I want to unpack. Uh, the first question I'm going to ask, though, is besides wait 15 to 20 years uh, for experience <laughs> and, and hope, what can the reps do to actually work on this stuff now? How can they raise that level of business acumen now? Create scenarios. So get your executives in your organization to act as a potential customer or buyer. Get them to explain how they buy. Get them to explain to you how, how they want someone to run a meeting. Get them to tell you or teach you how they want to be sold to. That's number one. Use your exec, use your board, use any people, anybody in, in your organization that has carried a C-level title to help you. That's number one. Number two, the other thing is, is get your CFO to help you understand and, and read a 10K or a 10Q to extrapolate out of this 40, 50 page document, the three things that really matter and use, use them, use that again as a training or teaching opportunity. Um, there's, there's organizations out there. One of them is called BTS. It's a training organization. They do these massive heavy duty scenarios. So these scenario situations where they create a, comp a fictitious company and you basically have to play the role of the CEO. And so you understand what, it, what decisions, what really tough decisions you have to actually make to run the business to make sure that you're actually profitable and that you're, you know, you're delivering the right level of value to your share, shareholders. And then all of a sudden you realize, well, I got this little peddly little salesperson that's reaching out to me that wants to sell me this content management solution. I don't give a shit about that. Right. Right. I'm thinking about GDPR and the implications on my business and how much, what changes I need to make from an infrastructure standpoint to think about, you know, the tax implications of if we get fined. Right. That's what I'm thinking about as a CEO. So I think, you know, looking for some heavy duty scenario type um, training programs like BTS. Uh, I know the executive conversation does something like that as well, but the executive conversations cost like $350,000 uh, to run a program. But the idea is the same, right? It's like, how can you use executives, your own executives to help you better understand how to run a meeting, how to engage, what they care about, how to read a 10K, 10Q, how to speak their language and not your own language. So I think there's a, there's a lot you can do just even on the short term, in the short term, to help prepare yourself. And then the other thing is, you know, go find your top rep in the, out in the field and go sit on calls with them. Go to customer meetings with them. See if they'll take you. Look at, listen to what they do. Pay attention to what they do. Read their emails. See if they'll send them to you so you can get a better understanding of like, what kind of email do they send to CIO of a Fortune 100 company? 
I think you know, it was probably 2010, 11 when I first started reading 10Ks for the purposes of selling. And when once I did, I did. But to be very clear, I did not understand them when I was first doing it. But just starting to get the words and understanding of how things were formulated, I think that's a huge takeaway from everybody listening today. So I appreciate you sharing that. One of the things, Doug, that you, you've talked about, you know, at, at Box, you were able to transform transform the way your reps talked to and about your customers to move to more of that customer centric storytelling. Uh, you know, I, I know we're going to run up against some time here, but give me the, the highlight of how you were able to do that because Box was already a, a decent size uh, company. Uh, I don't know if they were public yet when you when you joined, but how were you able to make that transition happen for them? Well, you know, it's interesting. So this it's actually kind of falls in line with what it takes to be a great enterprise seller, right? Which is this ability to actually articulate a vision of what's possible. Because that's what a C-suite, that's what the C-suite cares about. Yeah, I need you to solve this problem for me. But at the end of the day, I need you to solve it for me in a way that helps me think differently. This is why challenger sale and challenger customer are so wildly successful because it's like, educate me. Don't tell me what, what, what I already know. Don't introduce a problem that I'm like, duh, I've been struggling with this for the last three years. That doesn't really do me any good. Help me rethink my problems and maybe in a different light. And I think one of the things, you know, the only way, in which, or sorry, not the only way, but the best way in which to do that is to use the voice of your customers. Right. So when I was at Box, one of the things I recognized, and this is this is true for every organization. You look at how they talk about their organization. Ask anybody who show me your first call deck and look at the first three slides. And I guarantee you those first three, three slides are all about them. Yep. This is who we are. This is how many customers we have. This is what we do. Oh, OK, great. Good for you. Go fuck yourself. That's not what customers get. That's not what buyers think about. What a buyer thinks about is me. I think about me. So. Like, I don't really care all about all this hubbub about you because the truth is everybody says kind of the same thing. And so one of the things I noticed was like, you had Aaron Levy at Box who's speaking at 40,000 feet and talking about like incredible transformation and cloud and the industry as a whole and he's being a thought leader. And then you have marketing that's creating all these decks, right? You've got a core deck, a security deck, a, you know, a platform deck. And, and, and then there's like the rep who's trying to articulate and trying to channel Aaron and trying to use these assets that marketing has created. And they're creating these hodgepodge Frankenstein decks, which reality is they're a hundred percent selfish and self-serving. And so my kind of, my, my thesis on this is the best possible scenario for us in order to gain that level of credibility so that we can articulate who we are and the value that we deliver at the same level that Aaron can. Because look, when Aaron walks on the stage or he talks to a customer, he can say anything and people will listen. Mm-hmm. Because he's built a multi-billion dollar industry, really, if you think about it. And so he's got that level of credibility. Nobody else does. And so what do we have to do? We have to articulate who we are and what we do and the value that we deliver to our customers through the voice of our customers. Right? So what do we say? Well, look, we've been at this for a year. We've been at this for 10 years. We've been at this for 20 years. And it's really safe to say that we've learned a ton from our customers. And some of the things that we've learned, I'm willing to bet, are lessons that you haven't quite learned yet because you haven't been down that road yet. But I'm willing also to, willing to bet that you're going to go down this road because you're just like your other competitors. They've all gone down this road, right? So by using the voice of our customers, say, well, look, this is what our customers shared with us. This is what they continue to struggle with. This is what they kept saying to us over and over again. So now it's not, let me tell you, which is what most salespeople do. It's no, let me help you understand what's really possible by painting a picture of what your peers are doing and what they've learned. 
I recently saw you speak at the Rainmaker Conference down in Atlanta, uh, thanks to SalesLoft. And that was one of the things that I really, really took home is because when you're dealing with a, a, a prospective company right now, th this is probably the first time they're dealing with the problem that you're trying to help solve. And so you have that experience of having solved that problem 10, 15, 20, or 100 times with all of your customers. And so be able to bring their voice as opposed to just yours as the company, I, I think it's absolutely... Not, I hate to use the word or overuse it, but critical. It's critical to that because you can share that peer influence and really get them going somewhere that they didn't even know was possible and they probably hadn't thought about. Yeah, and that's the goal, right? If you fundamentally believe in challenger sale and challenger, challenger customer, the idea is to get them to think differently, right? The idea is to get them to think about problems they haven't even considered. And, 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 and I'll give you the perfect one. And this is, this is like the easiest one that everyone should be talking about. Now, granted, if you can't deliver on this, then don't go talking about it. But just think about it this way. Think about SaaS as a whole. SaaS today is incredibly easy to buy. Credit card, boom. Freemium, boom, done. I'm on it. I'm already using Dropbox. There you go. I just logged in. And I can use it. It's super easy to buy. It's also super easy to turn off, right? It's, it's, it's fairly easy to get rid of your SaaS contract and switch over to something else. What's difficult and the most difficult aspect of all SaaS that nobody talks about is change management. You want me to switch from saving things on my hard drive, my C drive, or my D drive to all of a sudden using something in the cloud that I log in on my mobile device? What the hell? What if I forget my password? I don't ever forget my password on my laptop. I just dump things over there and it's saved. What do you do? And I use my flash drive to help me get that off my, my laptop and, and onto another device so I can print or whatever it may be. So changing behavior is really difficult. I'm used to doing things a certain way. Now you want me to do it a different way. And while you may say that it is going to be faster, better, easier, and add more value, I still have to change how I think about doing my job. And that is fundamentally difficult. So if you as an organization can show me how that is in exceptionally easy or how you can help us be wildly successful in that transformation and that change of behavior, then guess what? I'm more apt to pay attention because that's a real partner. I'm not just selling you a, a product. I'm actually helping you think through everything that's involved in buying a solution or everything that's involved for sol solving this problem. This is so incredibly relevant, Doug. Right before we jumped on uh, this conversation, I was doing a coaching uh, call with one of my clients and he has a customer right now, been with him for three years, is thinking about switching to a cheaper uh, competitor. And the, a lot of the talk track that I had him working down was exactly what you're talking about right now. It's like, let's pretend that they go down that path. What is the cost? The total cost of ownership is sure, it may be cheaper, but what is their cost of switching? What is all of that change management going to have to cost them? And so as he's, the, the what he's about to go do while we're talking right now is literally start to unpack that for the customer and say, hey, I understand, but what's it going to take for you to switch? If you decide to go down that path, let's just think about all the stuff you've done over the last three years with us that you now to get, to get someone else up to speed with and go down that same path. So incredibly right. relevant. Doug, I got to take a quick break to say thank you to our sponsors. When we come back, it's going to be time for the money round. So you don't go away and sales sooners, you don't go away there. We'll be right back. Costello has been a sponsor of this show for several months now, so I wanted to call founder and CEO Frank Dale and ask him why exactly he built Costello. You and I have talked to a lot of salespeople, and I've yet to meet one that doesn't want to be great. But if we look at the tools that they have available to them, they're not built to make their job easier. We have CRM, and it's great for contact management. 
We have awesome tools like our friends at SalesLoft that will help you with cadences and, and reaching out to prospective customers. But the second we start talking to someone, we're stuck with Post-it notes, Google Docs, and Evernote templates. And if you're trying to run a dynamic sales call, that just doesn't cut it. And so what that leads to is forgetting to ask that question you meant to ask, not remembering that customer story when you need to tell it, and then data that maybe we need to understand what's going on in the business, not making it back to CRM. Connect with Frank and his team or request a demo at andcostello.com. That's A-N-D-C-O-S-T-E-L-L-O.com and see why their platform is truly changing the way reps run sales calls. We're back and it's time for the money round. Doug, are you ready for the money round? I think so. Bring it. Here we go. What's the one thing that's contributed most to your transformation from normal to exceptional? Acting classes. If you were to start over today in sales, what would you tell yourself to spend the next 30 days doing? Practicing, practicing my message, my pitch, my why me, why now, why change, practicing writing emails. I'd practice selling to my CEO, to my CFO, sending emails to potential prospects. I would practice, practice, practice until you nail it. Two-part question for you here. Which phrase describes you best and why? I love to win or I hate to lose? <laughs> um, I hate to lose because I'm a control freak. It's like I want to be in control and I believe I control my own destiny. And when I do that, I win. And when I don't have control and I lose, it drives me freaking bananas, which is why I'm great at individual sports and maybe not the best at team sports. <laughs> <laughs> What's a book, Doug, that you've read multiple times or always find yourself recommending to others? The Power of Now has probably been one of the most important books that I've ever read in my whole life because at the end of the day, it, it gets us away from worrying about what might happen or stressing about what did happen because at the end of the day, none of that really matters. The only thing that matters is right here, right now. Sales Tuners, if you'd like to check out Doug's suggestion of The Power of Now for free, head on over to salestuners.com slash book. There you can sign up for a free 30-day trial of Audible and browse their over 150,000 titles. Again, that's salestuners.com slash book for The Power of Now. Doug, what's currently at the top of your bucket list? Taking my wife to either Fiji or the Maldives so that we can hang out in one of those little bungalows over the water. What's the biggest piece of advice you have for all the sales tuners out there grinding today? Don't take it personally. Winning or getting somebody to respond or closing a deal, there's so many elements that are out of your control. Um, timing, relevance, you have no idea what's going on in someone's personal life that might cause them to have to cancel a meeting or have to push a deal back. You know, at the end of the day, do your best. Always seek to do better, but try not to take this shit personally because it can suck the life out of your soul and that's not worth it. Doug is super accessible on LinkedIn and Twitter at Doug Landis and even shared his personal email, Doug at MCAP.com. That's E-M-C-A-P.com. But he did throw out one caveat. He said, if you send him a shitty templated prospecting email, he'll crush you. So hopefully I don't see any of you getting called out here anytime soon. Let's get to my top takeaways. Number one, raise your business acumen. Selling into the C-suite of enterprise companies is more education than pain-based. They know the problems they have, and they're looking for salespeople to help them rethink what's possible. This has nothing to do with your product features or benefits and everything to do with their business. You need to be able to quickly identify your value and show direct correlation to their pressing issues. Number two, define the trigger moments of customer success. 
when it comes to customer success, it's not enough just to get your customer to the point of where they can't live without your product. What you need to do is really dig into and understand why they can't live without it. What are those trigger moments that get them to go from exploring to needing to not being able to live without it? Number three, have the conviction to say no. Lose the happy ears. Not everything is a good opportunity for you or your company. Could you potentially lose a deal with this approach? Damn right. You might, but the level of respect that you will gain will trump any potential loss. Knowing your value and the impact it can have on an organization will help you build that confidence. That's it. Those are my takeaways, but I'd love to hear yours. Please tweet at me at SalesTuners or shoot me an email, jim at SalesTuners.com. I reply to every message that I get. All right. I hope to see you next week. Until then, I'm Jim Brown. Let's make it rain. Thank you for listening to Sales Tuners. Stay up to date at www.salestuners.com. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review us on Apple Podcasts. And they stay there. And they stay there. If you could travel back to any point or place in time, where would you go?